Hello and welcome to episode 26 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. It is uh, April 3rd, 2018. I'm your host, Matthew Nugabauer, coming to you from, yeah, uh, kind of somewhat cloudy, but mostly sunny, believe it or not, suburban Thornhill, suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thornhill's the name of the suburb. Anyway, it is Tuesday in Easter week. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Let's talk Star Wars. <laughs> As uh, you know, I... I got the uh, the Blu-ray for the Last Jedi. Uh, I'm going to talk about and watch the director, the the documentary, the director and the Jedi. I'm going to talk about that. Uh, a few things that come into that. I watched it twice and, and had a few thoughts from that. Uh, but first, how am I Star Warsing this week? It's it was Holy Week. Had to find some time to relax a little bit. Um, and so again, you know. Was it was it Tuesday? We did the podcast. We went down went down to Yorkdale, the mall here, and picked the Disney store. Picked up the Blu-ray, and uh, I don't really talk about toys, but with the Blu-ray along with the lithographs, because I pre-ordered it, it came with a, a discount. I think I guess a ten dollar discount on purchases over forty dollars, and so I got uh, one of the cheaper models of the the. Kylo Ren's TIE Silencer. Uh, I got this wonderful Coruscant Guard Clone Trooper mug, ginormous mug that I'm using right now. And when I stop to take a coffee break, like just right now, just this uh, coffee, um, I'm drinking out of this ginormous Coruscant Guard. It's kind of obscure to do of the red markings of the Coruscant Guard here, but. It's a, it's a good prequel era, prequel era mug here, and it's it's ginormous, so <laughs> make it up words. Oh, I guess I didn't make that up. Using fake words, like ginormous, is the only way to describe it. The 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 protrusion of the, the, the uh, I guess, the, the where the pipes come in for oxygen or whatever, the filters, and then the chin with the voice box thing, it adds more volume to it, <laughs> so it's, it makes it bigger. Anyway. The biggest thing I got was uh, the this R2 was on sale. Uh, well, kind of in R2 model. You push a button. Yeah, that, that's what it sounds like. Anyway, I open I open the box. I didn't read the back part of it, but and then I realized, oh, it's actually kind of interactive. You push the button. Flip a switch. Push the button. It has a specific mode. Um, and that you can just push the button and it'll it'll go. But there's also a voice command vote mode on it too, which is crazy. I'm gonna have to spend more time trying that out because the most voice commands I've managed are uh, Hey R2 and Pew Pew, and with Pew Pew here it scurries away. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, so that's that's toys. I also started reading uh, I guess a few weeks ago, Lords of the Sith. Which was the the Paul S. S. Kemp novel, uh, mainly billed as the relationship between Vader and and Palpatine. It's set eight years after Revenge of the Sith, so make it what eleven BBY, and uh, it, it's fascinating on that score. I haven't, but the thing is, the first third of the book is more about Champs and Dula and the Free Ryloth movement and this plan of attack on. Uh, on Ornfrey Ta, the senator, 
Imperial Senator, who's just a, a lackey, basically, of, <laughs> as most most senators were at that point, uh, just a, a talking head for the emperor's policies. Um, so, so clearly, the Free Ryloth movement wants to take them out, take him out, but uh, but also, yeah, you know, the the emperor and Vader are aboard, and we want to take them out, and it, this whole internal monologue in his head about in Cham's head about oh, they're not terrorists, they're freedom fighters and and kind of the emotional and mental gymnastics they have to go through in order to justify killing people um, and that's it's fascinating, I, I think they end up I mean that's the funny thing about Star Wars is we end up giving rebels a bit more of a moral pass than uh, we give the Empire, obviously, but then then we certainly then we give freedom fighter terrorists in our day, in our age, and that I can understand that to some degree. Um, but that's the funny thing is is it's described you know going Anakin, you know, Vader's relationship with Anakin in his own head, this novel, and going into that, going into uh, the relationship between Vader and Sidious. But the first third of this novel is. Mostly Cham and and the Free Ryloth movement on this attack on on this ship and that that Ta and Vader and Palpatine are supposedly on, and even though it's not what I thought it was, it, it's still pretty awesome and pretty well written. You're interested and you're engaged in this very planet specific story that w will have implications. I mean. Hera, I'm trying to think how old she might be. She's not actually in the novel, as far as I can tell. Um, I, I don't even know if she they've thought of her yet. But this is about Hera's father <laughs> and, and the type of things he had to do and, and believe. And um, it's interesting, <laughs> just with the end of Rebels, how seeing how she ends up as an adult. Very mothering, compassionate, also a general in the Rebel Alliance, um, and so yeah, it's interesting to go into her her family history a little bit. The uh, speaking of speaking of Harrison Dula, the like a general, uh, the comics. I, I should talk more about comics. I really should uh, bring those up because they're still um, they're they're really hitting a high note here. So Hera shows up in, in the Dr. Afra comic <laughs> and it's, it's so funny because that's a weird comic. Uh, it goes into all sorts of side corridors and alleys of the empire that you won't see anywhere else. Like these experimental, uh, weapons factories and sort of weapon lab basically. Um, and how in the Hera we know, and the Afro we know are so different that, <laughs> I mean, they don't play it up too much in the comic so far, but um, it's, it's, it'll be, it'll be interesting if they, if they made, had Hera kind of serve as a straight man, straight woman for, for Afra. Afra's crazy. Afra's ridiculous. It's, it's a lot of a fun comic. Um, this didn't, so this didn't come out this week, but maybe it comes out tomorrow. I'm not sure. Um, the Vader comic and the ongoing comic. 
very fascinating. What they're doing is they've gone back to uh, what's that planet? Admiral Akbar, Mankala. <laughs> um, and, and so the ongoing comic is, of course, set. We're now we've got to be coming up to Empire Strikes Back soon. Um, the Vader comic is at this point set three years after Revenge of the Sith, this arc, and the Vader comic. No, the, the ongoing comics got to be, I guess that would make it about 19 years later, 18, 19 years later. They're both on Moncala, and the first one is, the Vader comic is very much a, you know, the aftermath of the Moncala Civil War. It was this great Clone Wars arc um, where, where the, uh, the king, you know, King Lee Char is, is there and... Then in the ongoing Star Wars comic, we, we see, oh, he was taken prisoner, and he's in this top-secret prison and all that. What's interesting, I think they're doing, is is kind of this weird, un, un, uh, unadvertised crossover between these two comics over multiple timelines. And it's fascinating. It's a type of interconnectivity that we all know and love, that we all want more from the films, um, that we don't know if we'll get. I, I did, I don't know if I mentioned this here, but I did end up seeing Christian Harloff's whole thing about having Dave Filoni take over the films and having Kathleen Kennedy be kind of on the business side. Or take, not, not have Dave Filoni just taking over the films, taking over the whole story as it comes together. And he, and, and this is a brilliant idea because he's someone who will understand their concerns that I think Kathleen Kennedy has about needing to to be uh, accessible to the broader not even just the fan base but the broader movie going public to have things in the films that aren't necessarily so obscure that you have to have read these books and comics in order to understand what's going on um or or to say haha we refer to let fans say you know this whole gatekeeping nonsense of We've read these books and we've read these comics. We know what's going on, and you don't. Huh, huh, huh. Um, but also to say, oh, we've read these comics, we read these books that helps fill in and connect, and, and these things that aren't a hundred percent critical to the plot of the film, but uh, a little critical, a little important. Let's us explain things. Advertises for buying the books and comics and stuff. Uh, I get that. And again, because the main thing is connectivity is what we want. Uh, this coherent universe. Again, I can't help but think that that the lack of connectivity, and it's not lacking so much, but the wariness about it comes from a critique of the prequels that said that George Lucas made the universe too small, and too much about marketing and too much about this and Ah, uh, originalists, give it up. Seriously, it's a, <laughs> it's a tiring argument. Of course, the universe was very... The galaxy was focused on Coruscant. Speaking of Coruscant guards, right? Uh, the events that happened in Cor on Coruscant and on Mustafar and other places in the prequels, on Geonosis, you can, the, the reverberations throughout the galaxy are believable. The people that you interact with and intersect with uh, that they intersect with are believable. Yeah, maybe he he did a little too, little too much fan service and had this creature pop up here, this creature pop up there. I think that's neither here nor there. I think 
great. They exist. Um, I love how every character always has a backstory of some sort <laughs> that we don't have to go into. That's the thing. But, um, you know, we could do well with, yeah, with someone who at least understands when to go deep cut, when to push into deeper things that are going on in other media. I want to at least oversee this, right? Because when uh, when uh, Ryan Johnson was talking about episode eight, and I'll get into that in a second. I, again, I loved episode eight, but he talked about. I mean, there's this this concern: the directors have enough creative freedom? Did they care, or were they able to just tell their own story without being latched on to what came before? More importantly, were they able to tell their story without being an artist, an auteur or whatever, without the oversight of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy bearing down on them, and that they were free to do that. And I get that that's good. I get that that's what's going to attract big-name directors. But if a big-name director wants to tell, like, like <laughs> Lord and Miller, <laughs> Lord and Miller, if they want to just tell their own story that doesn't actually pertain to uh, the bigger narrative, then I mean, it's it's like being in a church. Like, do you do you just like to hear the sound of your own voice? I don't know. It like there needs to be. That's the thing about Ryan Johnson that comes through. They get to director in the Jedi in a minute. It comes through is that he had this humility and gentleness about him. And this ability to say and articulate very clearly that the choices and changes, things that he does, are not disregarding the tradition at all. They're in response to what has come before. As stories are, and as stories go, and as life goes. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure how I got into this. But, um, yeah, we... It would be good to you know, have that connectivity. Speaking of connectivity, I did see yesterday a uh, a YouTube video that I'll hopefully remember to link that went into, here's the funny thing, all the points in Last Jedi that are echoes and resonances and, and sometimes direct quotations from the original trilogy specifically. There's one moment with the the spinning, that's a good trick, that's from the prequels, but Pretty much everything is all a lot that's there. In the same way that the prequels had resonances and responses to the original trilogy, the Last Jedi specifically has so many packed in there, and I I kind of noticed some of them on my first viewing. But glad this person compiled it. I'll try and remember to upload the video, or if I if I forget, then I'll just upload it in the uh, comments on Facebook. So or or. Or on Twitter or whatnot. Um, so that's that's kind of my preambles. I've probably got on that. We're talking about Lords of the Sith. Anyway, <laughs> my preambles. Time for coffee break. Yeah, don't fall over, R2. Okay, so the director and the Jedi specifically. So, well, no, I'll... I'll the Last Jedi Blu-ray as a package overall was it's fantastic. It's 
way better than the first Force Awakens one. And everyone tells you this. I, I went for the Disney Store one. I didn't bother with uh, any kind of special. I don't target. We don't have Target in Canada really. Um, I do think it's actually. I think it's coming out in the UK this week. So if you want to go get it, and if you're in the UK, go get it. Great film. I love it. Um, you know, great special features, an incredible featurette on uh, the balance of the force that I should probably <laughs> do in a whole episode on just response to that featurette. I'll watch that again. The, uh, yeah, so deleted scenes, the lead scenes are interesting. I, I get why they cut them. They are, they don't really pertain to the, the novelization. So that's good. So I'll be, probably be getting the novelization. Last Jedi novelization, which has so much extra stuff. Um, the yeah, the lead scenes. I, I don't really do director's commentary so much, but I might try that just because this one's so so interesting, and I want to hear what Ryan Johnson's thought process was for that. The director and the Jedi. Uh, it was a really really interesting, really rich look at. Especially, I mean, they spent a lot of time focusing on the uh, the set construction, and and that's fast, the set construction and behind the scenes, and usually the behind the scenes featurettes. But what really comes out in this documentary is the sheer size of this film. I didn't realize just how I mean how many sets. I think you know one person said, uh, and just just the creatures and. Uh, animatronics yeah maybe this was kind of an anti-prequels thing but whatever they they not necessarily i think they wanted to go for the realism of actually having animatronic porgs and animatronic fathers and uh, animatronic the the that space cow that squirts up the green milk it's really they really got a real liquid for the snot and real liquid for the milk and you see it pouring into Luke, squeezing it into the, his bottle. He's really, Mark Hamill is literally squeezing a fluid into the bottle. Uh, <laughs> into a real bottle. And I think taking a real swig. And it, it's just fascinating, just the detail that went into this film. And someone said it was, uh, it's, it's bigger than Force Awakens and Rogue One put together. In terms of all these details, in terms of sets. In terms of creatures, um, in terms of budget, I'm guessing. They even talked about how it was interesting to go into how uh, the the budget was coming up was tight. Uh, they they need to figure out what corners they could cut in order to actually save a little bit of money. It wasn't much. They said you know some CG things there, things they've already committed to. Uh, and whatnot and so what's interesting and i watched it with my mom last night and what's interesting is the way star wars films always do something new in terms of the magic of making movies they're always uh moving in a different direction than the rest of the world <laughs> on that and and so um, my mom said you know she was of the generation where she was an adult when she says star wars a new hope came out and 
just how seeing those effects for the first time, seeing those, uh, especially the, the practical effects, right? Seeing Vader stride down the hall. And, and when I when I was a kid, when I'd watch A New Hope, I'd try and think, or a kid, teenager, try and think, what would it be like to have seen this for the first time? Because I don't remember the first time I saw any of these movies, honestly. Um, it, it's just receded into my memory. I know the first time I saw Phantom Menace, of course, and Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith, and Force Awakens. I think I remember the first time I saw The Last Jedi. I think I may have come on this podcast like half an hour later. <laughs> um, I don't remember the first time I saw A New Hope and uh, Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi. They all came out before I was born. Um, but my mom does remember. And just being blown away by what they did and, and the way they transported people to this new world, new galaxy, through very practical effects. Uh, because they didn't have CG back then. Uh, and people being blown away. And people talk about that. And it got me thinking, you know, when The Phantom Menace came out um, in 1999, I was, I was 14. That was the first time, and people make much of this, that was the first time that much CG had been used in the film. People critique it. I think that's silly. I think CG is fantastic. And here's the thing is every film is like that now. I mean, that's what people don't get is Andy Serkis, uh, he wasn't the first to do this, right? It was Ahmed Best was the first to really do the motion capture with Jar Jar. And uh, Andy Serkis just perfected it <laughs> with, with Gollum and uh, with other creatures. And now, of course, with Snoke. Um, an interesting featurette, by the way, you can see... A few scenes of, of it's another featurette where Andy Serkis is on well the the throne room scene so they actually show the performance um, before the CG editing and it's really interesting it's really fascinating anyway Phantom Menace comes out and people are critiquing it and and it looks fake but it was all over and it was it's a it was a growing uh, growing way of making movies and it was new and people didn't it wasn't perfect I don't, I don't know um i believed it when i was 14 i see again coruscant uh when we see coruscant really for the first time going back it's interesting to uh reading having read the comic at least for uh the the the, the zon the thrawn trilogy Reading the comics of um, Tales of the Jedi, which of course set a few millennia before, but and it shows Coruscant a few millennia before, or with the Thrawn show, it shows Coruscant a few years after uh, Return of the Jedi. It looks very different, and they really had to reimagine. Of course, it makes sense. You you could fit can kind of retcon Tales of the Jedi Coruscant, right? I mean. Tales of the Jedi Coruscant could look like Rogue One Jedi, right? It's, they're about as old. Um, one just happened to have been built up and one happened to not. You know, um, the 
but with, with Phantom Menace, you see, uh, well, you see Otto Gunga, and you see all these things, and all these pr CG sets. Um, you know, fast forward, what, coming up on 20 years later, 19 years later. 19, Phantom Menace came out 19 years ago, guys. In those 19 years, CG has taken over. Where it's not even just in sci-fi, it's in <laughs> uh, so many other genres too. And I mean, primarily sci-fi because you have to create these fantastical worlds. But it's taken over in a way and it's been perfected so much that we look around. We're used to it now. We're, and this is my fault, we're, we're kind of spoiled with it. <laughs> and so, you know, it is CG in 2018, you know, in some ways is what practical effects were in 1999, right? A well-honed thing. And so along comes The Last Jedi and says, okay, we're going to do, well, even Force Awakens did a lot of practical, I mean, practical J.J. Abrams wanted that. The Last Jedi, right? They built the Canto Bite set. <laughs> they, the, the the casino. They built Snoke's throne room all around, and it isn't. It's a pretty sparse set, but it's ginormous. There's that word again. They built most of a life-size Millennium Falcon, I think. Um, what struck me is now the envelope they pushed, the Last Jedi pushed. You see this in the film, in in the documentary. It, the envelope they pushed is to do practical sets, practical effects on this scale. <laughs> and who knows if they're going to be able to keep that up because it's a lot of money, a lot of resources, but a lot of work. And what, uh, and what that meant was the scheduling had to be according to when the sets would be built. And they had to be creative when the sets would be available. And editing had to happen when... You know, Ryan Johnson said, you know, he normally doesn't edit on the fly. Usually waits till everything's shot and then goes back and edit. But some, it took so long for sets to be built because there were so many of them that they needed to, he needed to go home or go to the trailer or whatever at the end of the day, sit down with his editor and get to work. Um, it was this mammoth effort. And even and there was this interesting... Uh, little scene where Laura Dern is sitting down with uh, with the producers and, and the, the head honchos went on trying to figure out her schedule in light of uh, an HBO thing she was doing. This is Laura Dern, right? A-list celeb. Have to figure out where her schedule can fit in with the building of sets. Um, that's... This, this is... I, I'm, I'm not an expert on making films, but... That is that's above and beyond <laughs> in my mind, and you can tell in the film just not just in the, the attention, just in the atmosphere, but in the characters' performances, the actors' performances. There's you you feel the father right there because you're seeing it through Kelly Marie Tran's eyes when when Rose is, is at the gate there and about to release release him and. Uh, it's an interesting thing where she, part, you see in the documentary, she looks up and she's interacting, they're shooting, 
and then they cut and and Kelly Marie Tran cracks a smile like this is so awesome like the other thing in the Kento bite uh scene with all these characters all these different both animatronic and lots of costumes and different creatures and and John Boyega and Kelly Marie, Kelly Marie Tran are looking at this one creature with a face with a big head and they're saying is that real is that I can't tell. Is that, is that a person? Is that animatronic? I can't tell. <laughs> they push the envelope there again. That's the thing. And that's what really comes out of this documentary. Um, is just how impressive behind the scenes of this film is. I don't usually watch these behind the scenes that much. But this film was fascinating for that. It's fascinating for another reason, which I'll get to after the Coffee R2 break. Coffee. Thanks, R2. And now back to regular programming. Um, the director and the Jedi, one of the things they bring up is, uh, is Ryan Johnson and Mark Hamill. And they, they go for it in the, in the, in Mark Hamill's comments, they say, I fundamentally disagree with Ryan's direction and I don't even get why he has to die and, and whatnot. And we've heard this all before, but they put it in the documentary. So I'm going to bring, use this as an opportunity to talk about that and talk about Luke here in the film. Um, I'm going to go on the offensive a little bit. I think there, if you think, so, so Mark Hamill I think where he's coming from is he sees Luke as this grumpy, uh, disillusioned, uh, almost bitter character. You can, I mean, looking at a reflection of the posters and some of my toys and stuff here. Grumpy, disillusioned, disaffected. Um, you know, and and that's. When people criticize the film, I think often that's the biggest disappointment because they wanted the Luke we saw in the original trilogy. They wanted him to you know, be cheerful and hopeful and uh, <coughs> take out, ignite the green and take out the First Order with Rey and be that legend that everyone thought he was in the flesh there in the flesh uh, instead the thing that happens with Kylo Ren th this is Kylo Ren and he's disillusioned he's grumpy he's bitter he's isolated off on his own and so I, I think the argument Mark Hamill's argument Mark Hamill's well, sorry concerns I should say and fans concerns go a bit like this is no one's denying, from a story perspective, no one's denying that what happened with Kylo Ren with Ben Solo makes sense, right? One lapse in judgment. Um, that can happen. And, and the re reaction, especially given how much Snoke's influence on Kylo Ren was at that point. I, I think people are, are with the story up to that point. Nobody's denying from a character perspective that that was horrible. It was devastating for 
yeah, everything he hoped for and loved to have fallen apart. Um, and and so no one's denying that. Yeah, he'd be tempted to. Luke would be tempted to blame himself, and to need need a minute to step back. What Mark Hamill's criticism was was yeah, he'd need maybe just a minute, maybe a year or so to recover and recoup from his temple being burned down and from and to see things uh more accurately is not necessarily his fault. And and then as an experienced person, an experienced Jedi, he bounced back and be part of the galaxy better. Or be a more proactive part of the galaxy and um, be with his family, with Leia. And <laughs> um, I see where that's coming from. But with all due respect to Mark Hamill, I actually don't think that's entirely where Luke's headspace is. Right? I don't think, for some reason, I don't... I'm not entirely convinced that he's actually meant to be grumpy and depressed and disillusioned. I mean, there's the history of, of mental health concerns with Luke and, and <laughs> long-term dealing with trauma. I don't think he's actually terribly disillusioned with the light side of the force or anything. Um, I think that's actually a misreading of where Luke is at, quite bluntly. And... I don't know where that maybe maybe that's sort of what uh, you know the way maybe a mistake in the way it was written I don't know mistake in the way Ryan communicated things but here's the thing is Ryan didn't put Luke on the island J.J. Abrams did coffee break um, good coffee break <laughs> Ryan didn't put Luke on the island J.J. Abrams did. It was Ryan's, Ryan Johnson's job to think, okay, why is Luke there in the first place? Luke isn't there. I mean, yes, he might feel grumpy. And, and the first time we see him, we see his face all crinkled up. And he feels some disturbance, most likely Han's death. You know, yeah, he's cut himself off from the force. Um, but for Luke, it isn't just that he's, it isn't that he's bitter or disillusioned with his own impact. For him, he's bitter, he, he's not, not bitter and disillusioned again. <coughs> Sorry. Luke is consciously recusing himself. Because he's trying to consciously recuse the Jedi from messing up the universe anymore. <coughs> Wait, sorry. Right. More coffee. In Luke's mind, the legacy of the Jedi is failure. He says it himself. In height of their powers, they let Darth Sidious rise, form the Empire, and wipe them out. That's that second lesson that really gets it to where he, he's at. <coughs> Wait, the legacy of the Jedi, in Luke's eyes, is if you, if you wipe away their, the, the romanticized notion of them and look at their deeds, 
Yoda, uh, Yoda, everyone from Yoda to Mace Windu being in bed with the Republic, um, being these agents of quote unquote peace and justice in the galaxy, but really doing this head of spinning. Things I've talked about before, um, being too invested in the political machinations of the political elite having their temple high above the rest of Coruscant. And for Luke, he sees that and says, oh, if I'm going to be the last Jedi, well, I need to recuse myself. If I'm going to be on behalf of the tradition institutions of the Jedi, I have to recuse myself and stop and meditate on this island. Um, and that's fine it's not the most easy the easiest thing but it's going to be calm it's going to be peaceful it's going to be peaceful and purposeful then ray shows up <laughs> and doesn't stop pleading with her to no pleading with him to go and join the resistance and help fight um are basically saying uh, the Jedi were this great thing during the Republic. They fought in the Clone Wars and helped, quote-unquote, win the Clone Wars. Come and do that again, especially now that you're the Master Luke Skywalker, who, uh, who, who, the hero of the Rebellion, who redeemed Anakin Skywalker, your father, and defeated Vader and Sidious, right? Come and do these things with your laser sword, or with your influence as your as the uncle of Ben Solo, or whatever. Um, and and Luke's really struggling with that because he sees some merit in it, but he he doesn't want to do it. He's already committed to separating himself. Um. Staying clean, staying pure of the fight, and not having undue imposition on the rest of the galaxy. So I said before, Mark Hamill was wrong in reading where Luke is at a little bit. Here's the thing: Luke is wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, and and that we we don't have to assume that our character is always right and reliable right luke is right here he's right in saying actually the jedi need to really promote peace and understanding mutual understanding in the galaxy so the imposite the the imposite, the uh, intentions behind him recusing himself to octo they're right to a certain degree they're right in that, I mean, I say Last Jedi is the fast pacifist movie that Wonder Woman tried to be and didn't. <laughs> um, it's the feminist movie that Wonder Woman tried to be and didn't, but that's another debate. Um, yeah, the, the, the intentions were right to actually teach peace and understanding, even in situations where the galaxy can't really afford it, and pe people who are seeking peace and justice can't entirely afford it because the first order is about to gun them down and that's a whole thing i've, I've gotten in, i've gone into p 
peace and self-defense before. It's a, another debate. But his view on the Jedi being complicit and, and that that's the all or nothing response is, is to recuse, is to, well, the all or nothing reading of history of these old books and of <laughs> what uh, the failure of the Jedi is, is to say it was completely bad. We've got to recuse ourselves. That's, again, all or nothing. And Yoda is coming to, comes to him and says, um, I think part of what he's saying, part of even what Kylo Ren is saying, let your all or nothing reading of that past die as well. Um, the kind of fake out where Luke says it's time for the Jedi to end. So it is time for the Jedi to end. Yoda, again, I've said this before, Yoda does not respond in the affirmative. He fakes him out. Time it is for you to look past a pile of old books. And yeah, he's partly thinking of uh, the the texts themselves. What's interesting, though, is Luke is being so adamant about the texts because he's also so adamant about the thing I'm doing that is a right reading of what happened in the past with the Jedi. And again, Yoda tells him, no, you, you teach teach skill and mastery, yes, but greatest teacher is failure. The greatest teacher failure is. And even that demands demands requires Luke to be present in a way that honors his commitment to peace to nonviolence and that's the thing about the way Luke goes out first of all it's part of letting the past die um, letting Ray take up this mantle of the next Jedi without Luke's grumpiness. Yeah, he's, he's a little grumpy. Luke's one-sided interpretation of history without that, that being the only thing to guide her. There's three lessons. I mean, clearly not enough, right? Hopefully there are more folks for Force Ghosts in the last, in, in episode 9. We'll see. But but Luke's death is you know, also a way of... Um, I mean, and when he confront, confronts Kylo, right? I mean, part of that, I think, is that the force projection takes uh, takes all the effort out of him, all the life out of him. And he knew that would, in a way that him showing up and, and killing Kylo Ren wouldn't. You know, the, that's the, the parallel video I saw. You know, it, it is this great reflection of the very same thing that old Ben did for Luke. Right, is Luke is now going to do for both Ray and Kylo Ren. He's gonna, he says, like, see you around, kid. I'm gonna haunt you just like your father. Um, Luke dies so he can continue the legacy of the Jedi. He dies in a way, well, the thing that leads to his death is in a way that allows him to be present. With Leia, with 3PO, with the Resistance at the end. As this example, finally, this great example to Rey of peace and purpose. And he goes out uh, with the twin sons, with 
the way, you know, the twin sons that were there when Obi-Wan brings him as a baby to, to Aunt Brew, Owen, Owen and Lars, the twin sons, he's standing, looking out on the horizon, the future, always his mind on the future, right? And, and these grand designs, he dies being present in the moment, in the need at the moment. And that need at the moment was quite literally to distract Kylo Ren so the Resistance can get away safely. And he does it without striking a single lightsaber blow. And it, it's it's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's purposeful. Um, and, and so that's, it, it, to me, it caps off what I generally already believe is a perfect film. Director and the Jedi, as as a documentary, to my mind, it was already I thought a perfect film. Made me love it even more. I definitely recommend you you watching the documentary. If you haven't seen the Last Jedi, well, I spoiled a whole bunch of stuff for you. <laughs> but um, I recommend you seeing it too. Uh, see it with, even if you hated it before. Just just stop and think how next time you watch it think how could this work how could think what ways could this possibly be good think how do how might women and how might asian women and how women who want in leadership positions how how do they watch this film um you know the the lessons that that ray finn and and poe all need to learn by facing their hardest realities. Things like that. Because. I, I'm, I'm going to be blunt. If you don't like this film. Okay fair enough. But I think you're missing out. <laughs> on an opportunity to learn. Uh, and to experience something rich and deep. In response to. What has come before. In continuity. The type of continuity. That says. I take what has come before so seriously that I'm going to respond to it seriously because I also take where we're at in the present day seriously. That's the number one reason why I love this film is it gets at the heart of what it means to carry on a tradition and be creative in a new way at the same time and and this dynamic of that so um, it's up there as my three favorite Star Wars films with Empire and Revenge of the Sith who in their own way do the same thing in a lot of ways <coughs> so um, that's my take especially on Luke but also on the Blu-ray overall one last word from R2 help me Obi-Wan Kenobi you're my only hope. That's great. <laughs> that was a chief move, bud. And I love it. Alright. So that's episode 26 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. You can follow me on Twitter at NEUG485. Follow me on Instagram at MNEUG1138. <coughs> Have a happy Easter if you're so inclined. And may the Force be with you always.